Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. This is God's word for us today. Morning, church. Let's pray together before we look to God's word. Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks, that you've made yourself known to us, but even more than that, you have made ourselves known to us, who we are, who you've made us to be as men, as women, and even as children in this beautiful design for your family. And we pray, God, that with all of the controversy and all of the challenge these days around these topics, that you would give us your blessing today to hear and to receive these words as you have intended them to be heard and received, not adding to them, not taking from them, God, but being shaped by them. We need this, God. We trust that we do. We trust that you're good. And we ask you to show yourself in these ways today through these verses. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are now well into Paul's letter to the Colossians uh, and actually even kind of rounding the corner toward the end of it. Back in chapter 2, if you'll remember, uh, Paul finally told us to do something for the first time in the letter. He told us to walk in Christ, rooted, he said, and established in the faith. This is the primary call to action, really, of the entire book. First, Paul wants us not to shift from the hope of the gospel, because as we've seen, there is no greater hope in all of creation. Christ is all in all. We're not going to find a better hope than him. But, but more than that, therefore, we need then to keep walking in him, not looking for something else or somewhere else to walk and not walking even in ourselves. This is the path to maturity. And since chapter 2, Paul has been showing us what it means to walk in Christ and how we actually do that. We've seen in the last few weeks that we need to put off an old self uh, with its practices, and we need to put on this new self together, which means putting on, as we saw last week, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Again, that's all of us, every member of the church, as we saw last week. And above all, we saw it also means putting on love. But the last thing Paul told us in last week's passage, which is what Ron backed up and read for us today for the sake of context, he said, Paul said in, in, in verse 15, whatever you do, whatever it is, in word or deed, do everything, he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, this week's passage, we have to understand this, is very much a continuation 
of last week's passage. What Paul tells us to do here is part of this everything that we are supposed to do in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. He is still describing what it means to put on the new self and to walk in Christ, rooted and established. But in our passage today, he turns his attention to what this means for our families. In other words, what does it look like when our families walk together in Christ? We saw recently, again, that within this new self, there are all kinds of earthly distinctions that, at least in one sense, don't matter anymore. There's no longer circumcised, uncircumcised, slave, free in these things, right? Because Christ is all and in all. It turns out, though, God's created order for the family, these ordered relationships, husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, children, these things have not been done away with in the new self. However, they have been transformed. They have been transformed. Family looks different when the members of that family make Christ all in the family. And church, really, this is our big idea for today. Let's let Christ be all in our families. Now, most of the sermon will be devoted to how that looks and and how we each do that and what it involves even for each member of the family. To be honest, uh, this is a pretty simple passage. Um, with a very straightforward set of instructions in it. And yet, of course, we know it is also an incredibly sensitive subject these days. I imagine some of you even have really enjoyed this letter to the Colossians. You've been really helped by everything that Paul said about Christ, our hope laid up for us in heaven and and the all preeminence of this Christ who reigns in heaven and this great mystery of being redeemed into his body and this call to put off the old self and to to walk together in the new self. It's just, it's incredible. it, It is a beautiful letter. But then I imagine as you keep reading and come across this, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. It's almost like the record screeches to a halt. (laughs) And we're tempted for some reason to sort of tune Paul out. Before we get into our passage today, we need to talk about why so many people bristle at this passage and other passages like it. Why do we tend to bristle if any gender-specific instructions for the family, what that means, and who we are as people? I think it would be a major oversight, I think, uh, for me to preach this passage today without acknowledging and reminding us that we are living through a radical redefinition of everything related to gender, marriage, and sexuality. People are increasingly skeptical of this biblical vision for family and marriage. They're getting married less and less often, or at least much, much later than most have in history. Uh, divorce is sort of commonplace. We kind of just have accepted it in that way. It's, it's also fairly easy, at least in a practical way, to make one of those happen as a sort of a, a different vision of the modern life replaces the family life, as, as expressive individualism 
kind of becomes the new ideal of modern life. Having children is even increasingly seen as maybe an option at best, but also even a major inconvenience at worst for some. Abortion is now considered by many to be a right. And as our vision for the family is diminished and redefined, we are even beginning to reimagine gender altogether. And what was once just assumed for centuries about what it means to be a man and a woman is now considered old-fashioned, again, by many and even by some, oppressive. Then, to add to all that confusion is the fact that there is no shortage of abuse within traditional families. And even in churches uh, that believe that gender and marriage are part of God's good design for his creation. This is a confusing time to read, understand, and apply this passage. To read this today as if there is just nothing strange going on in the world right now when it comes to gender, marriage, and sexuality would be profoundly naive. We have to be aware of the moment that we are living through and the way that will change and impact the way we interpret this passage. We also have to be aware, as we just said together moments ago, that this is God's word for us today. If we are tempted to just bristle at this passage and dismiss it offhand, the truth is that says more about us and the spirit of our age than anything else. So if that's you, if, if you're tempted toward that today, I, I just want to encourage us to slow down and to consider why is it that so many are so skeptical of passages like this one? Why is that? I, I want to encourage you, if I could, even to be a bit skeptical of your skepticism. It's very popular these days to sort of sit above this passage and to appeal to the fact that it was written long ago to people who lived in a very different culture, which is true, almost as if, though, we're the first ones in church history to realize that the Bible is a very old book uh, written long ago in the ancient Near East. And while that's true, and we do need to be responsible readers of it, considering the literary and the historical context that does not give us permission to just dismiss it. There are timeless spiritual truths for all of us, church, to live by in these verses. But more so, frankly, than most weeks, we have to decide if we will submit to our culture or to this passage because we will not increasingly be able to do both. We won't. We are going to see today that within a family, men, women, and even children are each tempted in different ways and for different reasons, but we are all tempted to make ourselves all in the family. And Paul is going to show us what it looks like when Christ is all and when we walk together in him. Again, the structure of this passage is very simple. Paul first addresses uh, wives and husbands, which obviously kind of goes together, and then children and fathers, which also goes together. And just to say out front, uh, the entire passage is basically application. And so that's all we have today, just these two points. 
wives and husbands, children and fathers, and we're just going to apply as we go along the way throughout the passage. First, Paul's instruction to wives and husbands. He begins by addressing the married women who are members of this church in Colossae, and he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now this word submit is a fairly common biblical word. It's used 38 times in the Greek New Testament, and it means to willingly place yourself under someone else's authority and influence, specifically as opposed to resisting their authority and influence. For example, in Scripture, we are all called to submit to God. We're called to submit to his word, to the other members of our church, to the leaders of our church. We're also called to submit to government authorities, just to name a few. And so submitting to others is by no means abnormal in the Christian life experience for, for every Christian. Uh, it's a pretty consistent way that we're called to be like Christ even, who did not count his equality with God something to grasp for and to cling for, even though he, we know he was truly and fully God. He submitted to the will of his Father. Every Christian is expected to submit to other Christians in one way or another, and throughout Scripture, not submitting to anyone is always a sign of folly and sin, no matter who is doing it. In this case, though, within the family, wives are specifically called to submit to their husbands. And again, that means willingly placing yourself under your husband's authority and leadership. Or to willingly defer to him in leading your family rather than insisting on, on your way. And that word willingly is very important, actually, to understanding what submission is. In the coming verses, Paul is going to call children to obey their parents, and he's going to call servants to obey their masters. That is very purposefully not the word he uses here, because obedience is something that we are expected to do whether we want to do it or not. And that is not the nature of this relationship between a husband and and his wife. Uh, women, when you read wives submit to your husbands, I'm concerned that you may be hearing wives embrace your inferiority to your husbands. That is not at all what this means. <laughs> not at all. This is a willing submission. If anything, Paul is saying, wives, recognize your full equality with your husband and even still with a humble heart, choose to submit to him. That is rather than just blindly obeying him, right? Now, it's very common, again, for modern Christians to appeal to the cultural context of first century Colossae and to say, well, listen, that was then. Those wives were supposed to submit to their husbands in that culture. But I want you to notice, Paul does not say, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting these days, right? He does not say, uh, I, listen, I've heard about these Colossian women, and they could be more submissive. No. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In the Lord. This is a timeless spiritual truth relevant to all who are in the Lord, regardless of culture, 
or society, although it may look different in cultures and societies, we need to remember Paul is still talking about walking in a new body as members of Christ himself. He's talking about being in Christ and what that means. And so wives, this instruction is just as relevant to your life today as putting on the new self is relevant to your life today. In fact, this is part of what it means even to put on the new self as a Christian wife. And so just to pause and apply this, and wives, I want to ask, are you marked by this kind of a humble, submissive heart towards your husband? Do you look to him for spiritual guidance and leadership? In your heart of hearts, do you see your husband as a competent, respectable man who is worth following, even in spite, of course, of his, his many deficiencies and blind spots? Do you see him that way? And if not, if you're more often tempted to think of your husband as a pretty mediocre, less than competent man who really needs your leadership more than anything else, I just want to ask, why is that? Again, consider where that's coming from. Is that coming from this new self that we're to walk in Christ, or is that coming from the old self that needs to be put off? There are not hardly any voices in our modern culture that will encourage you, wives, to even consider this. Maybe I I could humble myself and and be more submissive in my marriage. Uh, If you want to see what our culture thinks of women uh, that think this way, uh, just, just watch an episode of Handmaid's Tale. If you've seen that show, I actually don't, it's very dark, so... Maybe don't watch an episode of that. Maybe watch just a trailer. But if you want to see what the culture thinks of women who take this passage seriously, there we are. It's a very dystopian future when the men dominate and take over everything. Meanwhile, church, again, there are no voices that will consider you to take this seriously. Meanwhile, there are, uh, here is, rather, God's word saying very clearly, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Briefly, I just want to address a couple really good, timely, and, and common questions on this topic today. And the first one is this. Well, what if my husband is really harsh with me or even abusive toward me? And I want to say, as a member of Redemption, please ask me and the rest of our elders to address that sin with your husband. Please. That may sound really strange, maybe old-fashioned, counterintuitive. That is what we're here for. We want to walk with you in these ways. If if your husband is constantly harsh with you, and especially if he's openly cruel and, and abusive to you, we are here to pursue him in that. We are here to call him to repentance. We are here to keep him accountable. And to be clear, in the case of clear abuse, that means separating you. Right away. It means notifying the police, law enforcement, because your husband's probably broken the law and he's told to submit to the authorities. He needs to be held accountable for that. 
And it means even following through to the full extent of church discipline, which could mean removing him from membership in our church and treating him as an unbeliever if he does not repent and in faith love you like Christ. Church is really important. Every member of our church is called to submit to the other members of our church, including me. Every member is called, every husband is called to submit to the elders. Every elder is called to submit to the other elders. So I'm so grateful we have a plurality of elders. This can actually work in our church. So if your husband is abusing you, do not let him just continue in that sin in order to submit to him. That would be a distortion of what Paul is saying here. It would be also completely ignoring what he says next of husbands, and it is clearly not what he has in mind. And so wives, if this is ever the case, seek help. Call your husband to repent of his sin. And please know, our church is not here to be a barrier to this. Our church is here to help you walk through this. Another question that's very common here, what if I'm just struggling to submit to my husband? I, I want to do it willingly, but I can't just control my will. And, and, and submitting in this case is, is really hard. The first thing I want to say is that that's a good place to be. At least you're being honest about that internal struggle. I appreciate the counsel of one pastor that I trust that if you're ever struggling to submit to your husband in this way, just tell him. Tell him. Right? Try to work through any bitterness or anger to the best of your ability, but then just express, look, honey, I, I really want to submit right now. Here is why I'm struggling to do that. Submission does not just mean blind, thoughtless, or certainly hard-hearted obedience. That's not the aim here. Uh, this should absolutely be an open dialogue between two equal individuals, and at the same time, Wives, your desire should be to grow in a humble and submissive heart toward your husband, a heart that can embrace his leadership rather than regularly resisting it. And it's just a brief final word here to our single women in our church who long to be wives. Just one brief encouragement instruction is to marry a man who you can willingly submit yourself to in this way. Don't just settle for any cute, reliable guy who can keep a job, okay? Marry a man you are so confident is walking in Christ that you can willingly submit yourself to him and in doing that, do that in obedience to Christ. Here's the hard part. If he's a few inches shorter than you thought he might be, don't worry about that, okay? <laughs> Uh, if, he, if he doesn't quite know how to dress and so on, don't worry about that, okay? None of that will have anything to do with the spiritual health of your future family and marriage. This, though, women, absolutely will. This absolutely will. Marry a man you can willingly submit yourself to in this way. Wait on the Lord to provide that man for you. Don't just settle to sort of hurry things along. Let Paul's instruction for wives shape the way that you pursue marriage. Next, Paul addresses husbands. If you look with me at verse 19, he says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
Now, there are many Greek words for love that are used throughout the New Testament. This word is related to God's agape love. In particular, this is a sacrificial, self-giving kind of love that often is, uh, comes rather at great cost to the one who gives this love. This is not a cheap, sort of infatuated kind of love. This is a weighty, give up everything for the sake of your wife, even when in that moment she may not deserve it, kind of love. This is the kind of love that Christ himself has shown to us in dying for our sins on the cross. In a very similar passage in the book of Ephesians, Paul even says it this way. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is the kind of love we are talking about, husband. Single men who are aspiring to be husbands, this is what you are signing up for. It's not just finding a cute girl who can be kind of an ornament to your life and and fulfill you. You're signing up to pour out yourself to this woman that you love and you cherish. The truth is, in Paul's day, the idea of wives submitting to their husbands would not have been the least bit controversial. However, this command here, actually, would have been incredibly strange to most people. In this day, husbands were expected to maintain order in their families. In general, family was seen as more of a utility than a precious gift and a blessing. It had often very little to do with love, especially the call to be a husband. But this distinctly Christian vision of being a husband would have flipped all of that on its head. Men, you're not called to just be strong. You're not just called to provide and protect. You're also called to love your wife with a deep spiritual and sacrificial love. By contrast, Paul says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. In the same way that women in their marriage role are often tempted towards unsubmissiveness, men in our marriage role are often tempted towards unloving harshness. We see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when the very first man and woman rebel against God together and they get separate curses. And as part of the woman's curse, it says that her desire will be for the man and he will rule over her. That is in a, in a harsh, unloving, domineering sort of way. That is, he will twist his God-given role as the spiritual head of his wife to serve himself and his own interests rather than serving God by loving his wife sacrificially. Men, listen, this is what we are tempted towards. We are tempted towards this is a real temptation. I want us to see biblical masculinity and manhood are not a show of bravado and brute strength. Our strength is gentle and sacrificial. And listen, men, our strength is rooted in a profound love for our wives. We need less cheap chest-thumping masculinity in the church. We need a lot less of that. We need more costly, 
cross-bearing masculinity. And so husbands, I want to ask, are we marked by this kind of a deep, self-giving love for our wives? If your other brothers in Christ were to look into your family life, is that what they would see? Would they see a man who loves his wife in a deep and spiritual way and deals gently with her? We are often presented with two polar opposite visions of masculinity. Uh, we are either told that our masculinity is, is toxic, it's just problematic, we should never try to do anything like being a man in any specific ways, we probably should all just be more like women. Or we are told and encouraged to be honestly the opposite extreme, kind of emotionless and, and unfeeling because, right, we're men. In churches like ours, frankly, which, which do value the Bible's teaching on gender, especially in light of the cultural climate we're in, we're probably going to be tempted, I think, just my assessment, toward the latter, toward unfeeling, unemotional. We're supposed to be strong and stoic, but maybe we end up being a bit withdrawn, maybe, disengaged, as if our hearts aren't really stirred to affection by much. We don't really long for much at all. And the solution to most problems in the world, if you ask most men, is just like everybody just kind of needs to relax, right? I think we can see here that is not God's vision for us in marriage. It's not. We do need to strive for strength, right? We should be able to carry burdens for our wives and our children. That requires a certain kind of stability and self-control. Absolutely. But men, God has called us to love our wives deeply with a Christ-shaped, self-giving love. If you are kind of an even-keeled guy about most things, don't really get excited about much at all, that's fine. But give your wife all of who you are. Tell her you adore her. Pour your heart out for her and to her. This one is particularly convicting for me. But for every thought we think about ourselves and our career and our calling, men, let's think three thoughts about our wives and how precious they are to us. That is what our headship is all about. It is about glorifying God by cherishing our wives. It's not about insisting that we get our way. It's not ultimately about who makes all the decisions. That's not the point. This is about our responsibility to love our wives in a way that helps her to see, wow, I guess this is how Christ loves me. And so husbands, I want to ask us today, in what ways do we need to die so that our wives can flourish? What hobbies do we need to start neglecting? What free time can we reclaim so that it can be spent on her? What harsh comments do we need to repent of and ask forgiveness for? Brothers, let's die. Let's lay down our lives. Let's lose the argument, and keep loving our wives so that Christ can be all in our families. Next, Paul turns his attention to children and fathers, which obviously go together. If you look with me at verse 20, 
He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, it's hard to say exactly what age range Paul has in mind here when he talks about children, but since he's speaking directly to what seems to be the household, it's probably safe to assume he's referring to young kids who are still in the home. In our culture, that would probably mean kids about 18 and under, or at least any kid, child, who has not yet ventured off on their own. They're still dependent on their parents primarily. It's really interesting and noteworthy, I think, uh, that Paul even addresses children directly in this way in a letter that would otherwise be written to and probably read aloud among an entire local church. This is probably evidence, I think, that children, young children even, were a regular part of the early church's gathering. As we, all the passages we just went through in this letter about Christ and his all preeminence and everything, the kids were not somewhere playing with Legos. They were listening about the all preeminence of Christ. They were listening to all of it. They were expected to learn and grow up with their parents, especially when they're able to hear a letter like this, even read in a church and understand it. Meant to grow up and learn with their parents as a part of the church. Kids, I want you to notice that Paul uses a very different word here for your relationship to your father than he does for your mom's relationship to your father. Uh, you are not just supposed to submit. Uh, that's sort of assumed. You are supposed to obey your parents, that is both parents, in everything, which does mean what it sounds like, which is basically you're supposed to do what they tell you to do, uh, whether you like it or not. Parents, as an aside, uh, while this certainly does not give us permission to be harsh or abrasive with our kids, Paul's going to discourage that in just a minute, it does mean that the God we worship expects our children to obey us. This is his design for them. This is his plan for them. And it is not unloving for us to expect that they will obey us. In fact, uh, God has put us, parents, into the lives of our kids so that they can learn to obey in authority and therefore learn to obey and walk with Christ. Kids, God is calling you. God is calling you to obey your parents. Uh, and he's calling you to do that, he says here, in everything. Which, no, does not mean that if your parents ask you to sin, that you should obey them. They're probably not going to do that, probably. But it does mean that in almost every situation, your default assumption, your heart, your desire even, should be to obey your parents. And I want you to see, it's not because they're always right. And it's also not because it makes them happy when you obey them. It's because honoring your parents in this way pleases the Lord. That's ultimately what this is about, church. It's about making Christ all in your family. And this is the role, kids, that you play in making Christ all in your family. The truth is all of us are tempted, moms, dads, everybody in the family, we're all tempted to break free from God's authority over us from any outside authority, really. This, this is kind of the nature of what sin is. It's an all-out rejection of authority. No one can be over me, ever. But God has given you parents uh, to show you the beauty and the importance even of having this kind of authority over you. So you can submit. None of us are meant to live as if we are God and we need no one over us ever. None of us are meant to live that way. 
So you can be confident of this, kids. Be confident that if you had no parents at all and you just did whatever it is that you wanted to do, that would not go well for you. It would not. And ask yourselves instead, am I marked by this kind of respectful obedience for my parents? Ask your parents if you're marked by that respectful obedience for your parents. And if they suggest that there's an area you could grow in, listen, right? Hear them out and try to work on that. So long as you are under your parents' authority, it is wise for you to assume that they know better and they see things more clearly than you do. Again, that doesn't mean it's always going to be true, but it is wise for you to assume that it is. When they tell you, no, you, you can't have a phone yet, when they tell you, no, you can't spend the night at that friend's house. Uh, when they tell you, yes, you absolutely do need to be in bed by such and such a time. You may have a long list of friends someday who will tell you and encourage you to roll your eyes and just ignore them. But again, that's how sin works. It always tells us that authority that's over you, they don't really care about you. They're just trying to control you. Sin promises to set us free from all authority, including God's authority. And then when it does, that authority, that freedom crushes us. It does not give us life. Never satisfies because we can never get enough authority, enough control. And the more and the more we get in pride and in sin, it corrupts us. So if you're struggling to obey your parents, that's fine. <laughs> it's, it's normal, actually. Tell them why you're struggling. Ask them to process that with you. I'm sure they will. And if at the end of that conversation you still disagree with your parents, children, humble yourselves and obey. Pray against any bitterness or anger even. Uh, trust that they love you and they want what is best for you, chances are your parents are not just trying to discourage you. And certainly that is not what God wants for you in the life of your family either, just to be constantly discouraged. In fact, next, Paul even addresses fathers, and he says this, if we look lastly at verse 21, fathers, he says, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. It's worth noting here that Paul tells children to obey their parents, that is, both parents, mom and dad, but then here he tells only the fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, and it seems as if he's doing that, therefore, very much on purpose. Uh, there are probably two reasons for this. First, uh, unlike many would assume today, as the spiritual head of his household, a father is ultimately responsible for disciplining their kids, particularly when they are disobedient in the life of the family. Now, clearly, this is a shared responsibility. Children are commanded here to obey both parents, for instance. And certainly in the first century when this was written, mothers spent most of their time with their children and therefore probably disciplined them more frequently even than their fathers. It's absolutely true. But when children disobey in particular, when they break that family order in that way, they ultimately are supposed to answer to their fathers for that. And this should not surprise us, church, when throughout all of Scripture, the one true God is presented to us as a father. To be a father is to be a representative of that godly spiritual authority within your family. Chances are the second reason for this is because men are a bit more prone to provoking their children uh, than women are. 
for many reasons, we tend to be a bit less patient and a bit more harsh. And so this instruction is definitely, it's relevant to mothers. Mothers should not provoke their children either. But Paul is specifically addressing the fathers, and again, it seems he's doing that on purpose. And so to provoke in this way means to irritate someone to the point of stirring up a conflict with them. Paul's basically saying here, fathers, don't pick fights with your kids. Don't pick fights with your kids. And to be perfectly honest, I have been convicted by this because I have a tendency to do it, especially with our son. For me, it's often in an attempt to diffuse tension by, however, making light of a really stressful situation uh, when he's really upset about something. Maybe he says, Dad, I really want to bring this toy. And I say, no, you can't bring the toy. Rather than being patient and sort of hearing him out, I have a tendency to kind of just goof around with him a little bit, which works sometimes. He can just kind of laugh it off and move on. But sometimes I'll say something like, oh, don't worry about it, buddy. Listen, actually, I talked to that toy. He doesn't want to come. He doesn't want to come, right? Sometimes it works. He laughs it off and we move on. But sometimes when he does keep worrying about it and he even starts crying even harder, my blood pressure ticks up. Okay, now I'm upset. And I just, I double down. Sorry, buddy. He told me he doesn't want to come. So let's go. Now, I know in my heart that what I'm saying then, at, that, at least that second time around, is not going to help my son. In one sense, it's probably more a passive-aggressive way for me to deal with my own frustration in that moment. But even though I know he, he may be feeling dismissed by what I'm about to say, he may be discouraged even by what I'm about to say, I I still say it. And and in that moment, I am convinced I'm provoking him. I am irritating him on purpose, knowing what I'm doing. A few months ago, I was preparing ahead for this series, and we had a similar experience to the one I just described. And then the next morning, I read this passage as my devotional passage. And so I called Lewis over to me, and I said to him, hey, buddy, Listen to what God says here. He says, children, obey your parents, for that pleases him. And he said, okay, right? And I said, it also says, daddies, don't make your kids angry on purpose because you're gonna discourage them. And I asked him, does it ever seem like I'm trying to make you angry on purpose? He said, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it does, dad. I said, well, I'm, buddy, I'm really sorry about that. And when I do that, I am sinning because God has told me not to do that. And you could see his eyes just lit up. He just thought, this Bible is awesome, <laughs> right? So great. He even told Carrie, Mom, did you know that God tells mommies and daddies what to do in the Bible? We're like, yeah, buddy, we knew. Yeah. <laughs> so I told him, I said, look, You work on obeying mom and dad in what we say. Okay, that's what God expects of you. And I am going to work on not making you angry on purpose. That doesn't mean I'll never make you angry. But I never want to try and make you angry, buddy. That's not my goal. I want to encourage you. Men, the truth is uh, we are especially tempted to provoke our children. Uh, Because we're too wrapped up in whatever it is we have going on in our work. We're just too impatient in general. We just don't have time for that kind of stuff. 
we need to have time. We need to be patient with our kids. We need to be, yes, their greatest source of discipline, absolutely, but also their greatest source of encouragement. So dads, do our kids know that we are personally invested in their spiritual growth and maturity? Do they know how deeply we love them? Have you told your son and your daughter how you cherish them and you're so grateful for them? Do they know that we long and we pray for them to flourish and to honor God in their lives? Do we long and pray for these things? Or do our kids just know, listen, dad expects me to fall in line. And if I don't, then he's gonna tell me about it. If you're anything like me, you're probably reflecting right now on all of the ways that you've fallen short in your role within the family. You could probably be more submissive as a wife. You could probably be more gentle and loving as a husband and father. You could probably be more obedient to your parents as a child. I think we're all feeling that. Just appropriate to just admit that. We're all feeling that. But I want us to notice within a Christian family, All of us are tempted to break free from God's design and God's authority over us. All of us will want to be all in the family rather than letting Christ be all. But as we've seen in previous weeks, the solution here is not just stop it. The solution here is not just try harder, do better. The solution, friends, is to die to the old self and to walk in Christ, so that he can be all in our families. Church, no other motivation will do. No other strategies are going to work. Let's live as if God is, Christ rather, is truly preeminent over everything, including our families.